Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and I want to help you organize a plan to maximize your talent and help you become the kind of leader you want to be. Thanks for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader or maybe more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are indeed on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would do me a favor, find the share button. Usually it's within the episode graphic on the device you're holding right now. And you could share this episode with just one other person. Text it to them. We can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Speaking of a global community, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with George Smith, who has enjoyed a remarkable career in our sector, literally focused on nonprofit leadership around the world. He currently works for Orbis International, helping provide eye care for those in need all over the world. But we also share a fond memory or two of an organization we both hold in high regard, and that is Special Olympics International. So through the lens of those two organizations, George brings really timely advice about how he's navigated his nonprofit career journey, how he's adapted across cultures and literally across continents, and some classic leadership advice from Special Olympics International's founder, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. All that and much more, so don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 138. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find out all of the resources and topics George and I discuss, as well as more information on George and the great work he's doing through Orbis across the globe. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all of the social media platforms, including YouTube, if you'd like to consume your podcast content through that channel. Uh, Also, make sure you get on our email list and you won't miss out on any of the alerts and resources, including episodes just like this one. Also, feel free to reach out to us and let's connect. Happy to discuss your organization or maybe more importantly, let's talk about your journey to nonprofit leadership. We've got some coaching and training in a unique small group mastermind program that might be of interest. Let us know if you have any questions we'd be happy to discuss as there are still a few spots available for both of our spring cohorts. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with George Smith. George, thank you for joining me on the path. My pleasure. Well, George, you and I go way back. We have some shared history at Special Olympics but you have had an amazing career in multiple areas of the nonprofit leadership world. And that's my first question for you. Yeah. Why did you get first into nonprofit leadership? My whole goal in life from the time I was probably in sixth grade was I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. And I kind of pursued that academically and, and actually got out into teaching and coaching out of college. And um, it just happened that I was teaching at the university of Rhode Island some courses in adapted physical education, which was my background. And uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver came to our our summer games. And I had two, 300 
young students who were actually running the games for us. And on Sunday, she came up to me and she said, how did you get all these young people to, to, to volunteer and to do this? And I said, well, you know, Mrs. Schreiber, <laughs> it actually is pretty, pretty easy when once the, 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 the uh, students see and, and are with the Special Olympics athletes, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a no-brainer for them. It's just, this is really good because young people, not old people like us, young people are the <laughs> ones that are going to, are going to change the world. And there's the ones that we've got to get to. She says, would you mind taking a, you know, kind of a leave of absence, a sabbatical and coming down to, come down to uh, DC for a year and kind wow. of work with us. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know, Mrs. Shriver. Well, <laughs> that next Monday morning, I got a call from Dr. Tom Songster, who we all know. And he says, hey, listen, I, we, we need you to come down here. We'll make you like a, the director of coaching education and stuff like that. And they made me an offer. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come down. I'll try it for a year. Well, after, it ended up 28 years later that I was still in the NGO business. And as I got into it, I kind of reflected back on um, growing up as an, as an athlete, we were required to kind of do volunteer work. And I volunteered at the, the, the New York State School for the Deaf every Saturday, coaching whatever sport they were, whatever they were doing. I had a lot of experience with uh, the, the school for disabled in, in my hometown. But it never kind of it never kind of dawned on me until I got down to um, to DC and, and started getting involved in an international NGO. What the impact you could have in a leadership role and in, in a role with an organization like Special Olympics or any NGO. Yeah, it's fantastic, and you and I share that common interest. Uh, I had the same vision of high school uh, teaching and coaching beyond that. And uh, indeed, yeah. it was it was volunteer work in high school with Special Olympics. But yeah. it, it's hard to say no to Mrs. Shriver, as uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can attest. And um, we'll talk about that. You know, I use uh, stories that I learned from Mrs. Shriver from that brief time I was there, but I'm, you had great interaction with her. What are some of the kind of leadership lessons you took away from working with her? Well, I think there are a few things. I, I think one of the, the the early memories I had of myself is I used to take Mrs. Shriver to, to games and spend weekends with her. And when I wasn't, I'd be going out and visiting, and visiting programs and doing training seminars. I'd come back and she'd say, well, how did it go? And I'd go on and on and on and on about, I was just so overwhelmed with how fun and good this was and the type of people you're meeting. And she said to me, says, listen, when I was growing up and I was around a table with John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, and my wow. father, and they were all interested in, in government and in politics and blah, blah, blah. And I was interested like you are in all this, this social stuff and NGO stuff. And she said, I'd go on and on. And my father said to me, very simply, think things out thoroughly and be able to make your point in three bullet points. Love that. Because that's the only attention level I can give you around this table. And that's the only attention level people are going to give you when you're working with donors, when you're making a point to a board of director, when you're making point. And so if you watch the old Kennedy stuff, John Kennedy said up there, he says, you know, we've got to do something about children. Here's the three things we've got to do. Boom, boom brilliant. Boom. And so it, it became one of those things. And it, I don't think it's the, totally the whole leadership thing, but it was a lesson that was learned. It was to be able to take these big ideas, get them, break them down into three major bullet points and articulate them. And then it makes it easier for people to get on your team and, and actually do it with, with you. I think the second thing was, and probably the most important thing is 
Mrs. Shriver got out of her way. She was a visionary. She had her own ideas. But in terms of implementing stuff, once she carved out her, her vision for it, she left it up to people like you, me, Tom Songster, you know, Lee Todd and others that were around there to actually, actually do that. And that was a sign of a good leader. And, you know, and the other thing that I remember, you know, clearly was the fact that she would, you know, when I was working directly for Tom, you know, if, if Lee Todd or myself or Mike Smith or any of the other ones, if we did something wrong, you know, she went to Tom. And she she kind Interesting. of did, did that whole role, and I mean, it re- relates to our sports stuff. I remember the story about that David Oxter, Doctor David Oxter, told me about kind of leadership. Is the fact he says, you know, you ever heard of a guy by the name of Bear Bryant? And I said, of course I've heard of Bear Bryant. <laughs> yeah. He says, well, he used to he used to stand up on this big tower and watch the watch the uh, practices and offensive guy would jump off and he'd jump off again and he'd come running down that thing and guess what he what he who he went to yeah. who the offensive coordinator he didn't go to the person so you know part of this whole leadership thing is that, that I learned was the fact that you have to delegate and you have to trust your coordinators you have to trust the people that are working for you and you you know and down the line the people that they're they're mentoring and they're 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 leading that you have to make them responsible and give them the opportunity to work with their team and not jump around them and kind of go directly to those people yourself it's great leadership lessons and i'm so glad you lifted up both of them but i have to give you credit george to this day i've used you as an example of someone who articulates concepts in a very easy to absorb way. And, and I did not realize that it was in fact, Mrs. Shriver, that it sounds like you pulled that from, because I remember George, she was very intense. And if you oh, rambled yeah. in a meeting, she would cut oh. you off. And so oh, absolutely, you were very skilled at making <laughs> your point and providing in essence, the bullet points to support it. And it, that's fascinating that that's a leadership lesson you got from her. Well, yeah, it was, and it was a, it was a worthwhile one. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get back to your tenure at Special Olympics, which was sure. impressive. But you are now with Orbis. Yes. And and tell us and tell our listeners what is Orbis and what are you doing on the global scale through that organization. Well, Orbis is a really really interesting um, organization, and it it is in the in the area of prevention of blindness in underdeveloped countries. Um, it started out in the late 70s when a, uh, an ophthalmologist from Johns Hopkins University had this idea that, you know, we really needed to do stuff to bring up the level of, of ophthalmology and nursing and anesthesiology in these third world countries where a lot of the doctors couldn't afford to get training in country or come to places like Johns Hopkins get trained. So he started kind of doing some training and then um, he met up with some people in the aviation business. He said, well, geez, wouldn't it be good to kind of combine ophthalmology with aviation? And they created this flying eye hospital. So in 1982, they started flying this DC-8 um, that was donated by United Airlines and Boeing. And they started flying around training rural eye doctors. Um, and then in, then in 1999, they, they decided to open up offices and, and we now have offices in, in Africa and Asia, throughout Asia and Latin America. And the point of these country direct uh, country programs are to actually create these three to four to five year projects where we work with kind of 
provincial level hospitals and strengthen their capacity to treat very serious eye diseases and then roll it out to kind of rural and village eye hospitals where people may be there just to be able to identify cataract and send them to the major hospital or screen in, in schools and provide classes for, for young children. Um, but it's an organization that, again, it works in, in mostly in third world countries, and it is to strengthen the capacity of that, uh, you know, that country to treat and identify uh, causes of avoidable blindness. So it's a, it's an, a very impactful organization. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm sure you see in a very powerful way the transformation that that kind of uh, medical care allows for individuals and families that otherwise wouldn't have a shot at it. So that's impressive. Well, it's, it's, and right. It's interesting because, you know, my, my focus was over Asia um, and, you know, you go to a place like Mongolia and, you know, you know, they have, you know, they had a lot of kids that were being born premature. Yep. There was nobody out there that was understanding that if you're born premature, there's a lot of other things that can occur just like in the, in one of the, one of the outcomes is this thing called, retinopathy of prematurity where people go blind if you if within the first couple of weeks you don't treat it correctly wow so you you talk about you say well there's not a lot of people with rop but the the number of years of blindness so a kid that is born blind or becomes blind because of that has 70 years of blinding condition whereas you know that's preventable though right you know, yeah, just... whereas you know some some people who you know have problems when they're in their 80s or 90s have three or four years so yeah, exactly. it, it's really impactful and it, and 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 there's a lot of good good things that are coming out of that organization well and among the things that i've learned from you in recent conversations of course you were sensitive to this in your special olympics days working across cultures which of course special olympics international is a global uh, movement uh you were very adept at that and, and i'm guessing that you're finding even more of those skills applied to orbis but maybe talk about what are some of the keys as you work across culture uh, with such a good cause, but still it's different, I guess, in every country in which you work. Well, let me, let me just start with something generally that, you know, has occurred to me over the years in terms of leadership and then, and then how it applies to, you know, these, you know, leading in diverse cultures, sure. and diverse places. And, you know, basically I've always said to myself that leadership, you know, you know, if leadership was a science, we'd have a world full of leaders, you know, just like we could <laughs> right. have a world full of math people, we could have a world full of scientists. But, you know, actually leadership is a combination of art and science. You know, there's a lot of science involved because there's a lot of practical, you know, things you learn in leadership books. But the art part of it is the thing that I think makes really, really good leaders. Yes. And in my opinion, uh, my style is weighted much more towards it being an art than being a science. And, you know, I think in most cases, to be good in the realm of science, you understand how to work with constants. Um, in terms of leadership, there are some constants, but working with people and working with staff, there are really no constants among a team or an individual or at different times in different situations. And, you know, you and I both come from a sports background and, you know, you learn your leadership style that way. You know, you're a captain or an assistant captain. So you learn how to lead by example, encourage and motivate, and, you know, sometimes right. counsel with teammates, and then you become a coach and it's, 
very similar, but you have to have the vision for your offense or defense and you have to trust your assistance. And, uh, you know, like I said, and delegate and things like that. And you just have to be creative on how to use talents. You also need to be able to, you know, motivate and encourage. And when you, you know, when you change, you know, as a leader within an NGO from say a U.S. to a foreign base, or when you change from being the coach at Nebraska, where you're a ground game and go to, you know, to Baylor and it's a passing game, you've got to be able to adapt and change, you know, your whole strategy and your whole leadership style. Right. So, you know, in the U.S., I think we, we you know, understood more and, you know, pretty well, you know, how to motivate, uh, you know, basically a, an American workforce and, and, you know, you, you adapted based upon kind of, you know, the, the age of the people you were working with and their skills and things like that. When, when, you know, when I got over to China and I started to put together, you know, what I wanted to create was an international, you know, recognized high quality, high performing team. And I struggled a little bit because, you know, in, in that Chinese culture, um, you know, the, the older person is usually the one that's the most respected. It's usually the person that's the leader. It's usually, it's usually a man. And it's usually the fact that that person carves out not only the vision for an organization, but actually creates the, the work plan for each of the individuals. And, you know, you can't, you can't, go very far, very fast doing it that way. So, you know, over time, it was the, it was a matter of kind of, um, you know, showing by example and, you know, that, that people had to be, you know, accountable for what they did, that as the leader, I had certain roles, but as the managers or as actually the, one of the on the ground staff people, they had their own roles and their, their input was not only, welcome but it was respected and you know i remember the first couple months anything i said you know there were 13 heads in the room that were bobbing up and down saying yeah that's that's best and you know i we did a lot of coaching in terms of you know to be a good you know good and you know for me to be a good leader i've got to have your honest and open feedback yes and for you to become a good you know, a good manager, a good, you know, staff man, you know, staff person, you've got to be, feel comfortable to, you know, tell me that. And also to be able to, you know, have your own vision of how things are going, particularly when I'm a guest in your country. And so about, about three or four weeks later, I was, I had this big meeting and I said, you know, this is exactly how I think we ought to, you know, deal with this thing with the ministry of health. And it was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that will never work. That's, that's, and, and then somebody says, "Yeah, that's the stupidest thing that could ever happen." You know what's going to, you know? I'm going, "Oh, oh, here and we these go." Are young, these are younger yeah. people too. Yeah, they were yeah, younger people speaking younger up. People, and they were and they were women and they were nice. women. Yeah, and um, and so you know, today, you know, I, I left, I I left China on um, the last, you know, United flight, you know. Uh, they got out of there just as COVID hit. Wow. During this time, I've, I've been able to turn the country director's role and the and the chief rep role over to two of my staff members. It's running 
better than, I mean, I, I get a few emails every once in a while. What, what do you think? And, and uh, so nice. it's one of those things where I think you have to really do understand the culture, but you also have to understand the culture of the organization you're working, working in. Um, and the, the reason I say that is because when I took over, New York was micromanaging every single thing the teams were doing in Vietnam, the teams were doing in, in China and Bangladesh and different places because they didn't know how to articulate to the leaders uh, up in, uh, in, in New York what they were doing in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that made sense to them. So we, you know, we created this kind of these kind of teams of leaders that really could articulate our work, that felt comfortable talking to people in New York. Um, that knew how to follow up on things that uh, New York was saying, but also to be able to say that, you know, hey, New York, um, you know, Ho Chi Minh City is not New York City. Exactly. So, so um, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And that's why I said, you know, it really is an art, but it's also, it's a really have to make sure that wherever you are, I don't, you know, wherever you are as a leader, that you look at your surroundings and you look at your, the culture and you look and if you, if there are things that you can do to, you know, kind of blend the culture in the country you're working with the culture of your organization. I think that's part of being a leader. I love how you lift up the art and science and you're right. I think that's the, the art is often overlooked. Clearly you have, I think kind of an intuitive sense of that, maybe through your athletic days, as you said, kind of the sense of coaching or, or how do you develop that skill? I guess for someone listening, George, that, you know, you're right. They can study the textbook and the science, but how do you, I guess, get better at some of those kind of finesse elements that you have obviously been able to deploy? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, you've got to trust your instincts. Um, you know, that's kind of the art part of it is the fact that, you know, you, if you feel, gosh, this is the way in this setting that I'd feel, I'd like to be treated or I'd like to, to have handled and you, you, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but the art part of it is just to be flexible and to understand that it, it's, it's not just a straightforward, this is going to work. And it's not a straightforward thing that, because John responds this way, that Sally's going to respond the same way. And right. And so you have to change your leadership style, not just in terms of the overall organization, but you have to change your leadership style depending on the, the people you're, you're, you're working with. And, you know, you, you, you know, each person is different. And that's why, you know, there's, there's art involved in that is understanding where that person is at the time you're meeting them, how you get them to place that they want to be in, in a year and where you would like to see them in a year. And the fact that, you know, you know, at six months, you know, where you thought they should be and where they wanted to be, maybe in a completely different place. And so the art of being able to, you know, change course and to, you know, kind of redefine stuff with them. And I, you know, again, I think you do that by, you know, you know, leading in a collaborative way. And that by that, I mean that, you know, you, you lead along with the input of the people you're leading and that that helps you know kind of direct where you're going and you know you follow that kind of artistic path rather than kind of yeah this these are the the 10 steps to this or the 12 steps to right, this right and uh you know because you know, that just doesn't work well, in my for me for me yeah exactly well and and again there's evidence of your success following that path and in fact, your examples of, of things you took from observing and, and interacting with Mrs. Shriver years ago, 
clearly paid off. I guess, Georgia, you one that is kind of, do you focus on uh, self-improvement, evaluation? You know, what has helped you get better as you think back to your early days and what you learned yeah. and, or, or was it just kind of intuition as you moved along? No, I think there's, a, you know, again, there, there are two, th- two or three things that stand out. I think, you know, compared to, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you know, the, you know, these three, you know, 360 degrees evaluations, not only yourself, of, but of your staff people give you a lot of ideas of your strengths and weaknesses and where you can go. You know, the money that organizations, not only in the business and the private sector, but in NGO sector, in terms of, you know, professional development and training and, and things like that are, are really, are really important. And I think that, you know, a lot of, in a, in a lot of NGOs, as you know, you know, people are working 24 seven and they hardly can come up for a breath of air, even to spend some time with their family or take the 20 days vacation that they're getting a year and not turning back in 10 days. And, and so you really have to have a culture of learning and a culture, uh, you know, of professional development, and you have to make it important. You have yes. to make it something that, you know, it's not just something that you talk about at the year end evaluation, because by then it's too late. And so you just, you have to kind of build that into your leadership style that, you know, is part of me being a leader is wanting you to become the next leader. And, and here's how, you know, some of the things I would think that would be helpful to you, but you know, where, where do you, where, where do you think you, you would like some professional development and training? And, you know, sometimes it's just courses. Sometimes it's going to major conferences and networking, learning from others, but, you know, building into, you know, into your leadership style, the fact of the, and the importance of, you know, professional development. Well, I'm the beneficiary of that George still remember and appreciate that you were good for the young people in the office like me. <laughs> you were you were giving us a shot. Uh, I I remember, and I think there's a lesson there that you continue to point out that it, give these people experience and let them assert themselves in ways that are appropriate. Um, and so it it pays off. You know, and and I think that it, it really does. Is you know, and I think the other thing that I've learned, you know, probably more from my coaching. Um, background than my NGO background is that, you know, how do you put together a team? You know, you, you know, if you're, you, you can't have all kids that are, you know, six foot one and can shoot, <laughs> shoot three points all day. If you've got five on the court, guess what's going to happen? Yeah. Somebody's got to play inside too, right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, I've, I've kind of built staffs like I built teams. I mean, you've got to have people that are position players. You've got to have people that, you know, really can contribute in a meaningful way um, and do things that you can't do as yourself, that you right. can't do yourself. I mean, you know, I you take it the I've got some fantastic people that are on our monitoring and evaluation team. And, you know, that is not in my wheelhouse, ladies and gentlemen. So right, right. You know, and so at that point, you know, again, it's it's making sure that you know I, I understand the, the 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 macro side of those things, and I can I can tell you the types of impact and output stuff that I'd like to see, um, and, and the type of dashboards I like I make me a better leader. But for me to be able to go out and data mine that stuff and and come back and and put it together in a cogent way is, is important. So it, 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 I, I can't do it. 
So, you know, finding staff that you can surround yourself with that, that make you, you know, make you better, make you better. You know, it was like, I think one of the best one-two combinations that were ever in, in my time at Special Olympics were myself and Annette Lynch. And I was the VP of sports and she was the director of coaching education. That lady, that lady could get things done. She was so detailed oriented. She, you know, dotted every I and crossed every T and I was kind of the, the, the visionary guy yes. you know, where I want to go. And, <laughs> and, and she got us there. So yeah, you know, it's, complimentary it, it, skills, right? It's a complimentary skill for sure. For and sure. I love your point, George, that it, it sounds like you're intentional about not hiring in isolation that you think about how this person will fit on the team. And perhaps that is an important leadership lesson where I know it is a leadership lesson. In fact, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. What else do you look for when you hire people? Maybe you've captured some of that, but if I want to get a job and work in your organization, are there certain key characteristics that you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. You know, I think that one of them, you know, I always I, I always look for people that kind of have, kind of, if, if they've had experience, they're getting pro- progressive work experience, the type of things that you want them to do. I, I really, during interviews, always like to look at the EQ side of stuff as well, you know, how they communicate, their enthusiasm, yeah. you know, the way you, you, you know, the, the way they would probably interact with, um, with other people. Um, you know, I like people that work in teams, <laughs> um, a lot. Um, I, I think that, you know, those are the types of things that, that I look for uh, and not necessarily people that are, um, you know, Oh God, oh, I've worked at NGO for 10 years. Boy, I've had some good people that said, you know, I've worked in, you know, I, I worked in the business world for 10 years and I'd really like to get into NGO. You know, they're not getting into it because they're, they're going to get a pay increase from leaving right, right. IBM or Pfizer or some of these places. Um, and so, you know, you, again, it's, there's, there's some of these things that are just kind of a, an an art to it. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a a people person and I, I can catch on pretty well, whether I'd like to, you know, go out for a coffee or a beer with somebody and spend two hours of my life with, and uh, those are the type of people you're going to be with a lot. So you've got to have people that you, that, that work well together and, you know, we're enthusiastic, you know, have some skills and the skill set in the area that you're looking for. Um, but not necessarily that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just doing this because I want to do something good for people. Because you know, unless you have the skills, you got yeah, that more to it than that, right? Right. All right. I'm going down your greatest hits, George, of, of different leadership lessons. And, and again, you mentioned being a visionary. At, you, you land uh, literally and figuratively through Orbis. Um, how did you approach? kind of the organizational vision there or the strategy, I'm sure coming out of New York, but you put your fingerprints on it. How do you approach strategic planning? Well, you know, obviously, you know, we have a global strategic plan, um, which is, which informs us in terms of the, the work we have to do. But, you know, my main thing in working in a country like in China and Mongolia and Vietnam and the places that I actually led was the fact that you've got you've got to line up with the national plans. So if you're going to if you're if you're going to create a, a strategic plan for China or Mongolia or Vietnam that is completely different than the prevention of blindness or the Ministry of Health plan for prevention of blindness in that country, you might as well go away. 
And so it was one of those things that we looked at, we met with, we met with the government. We, here's what we're doing. Here's what we do well. Here's what you want to do in terms of the national plan. You know, how can we help? And so we just kind of juxtaposed our capacities and our capabilities um, with what the, the country wanted to do and how we could help. And so, you know, a, a good example was a good example was in China. You know, we were doing an awful lot in in um, awful lot in in China around um, cataract. We were doing an awful lot in China around diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. And then all of a sudden, the the national plan came out, and the, the president came out and said, "Hey, listen, we've got an epidemic of." kids who cannot see the blackboard myopia it's the it's you know 80 percent of kids in high school can't see without glasses wow so you know as big as that country was you know you you know they're going to solve in shanghai and beijing and guangzhou and the big the big places but where we could help is we had people that could train school teachers on how to you know do a school screening with eye charts. We had people, we had optometrists that could, you know, prescribe glasses. We had people that could, you know, go out to rural China and find, you know, major companies who would donate glasses. And, you know, we gave out, um, in India alone, um, we screened 7 million school children over the last three years. Wow. Now the government is not going to be able to do that on their own. Um, and so, you know, again, we, we kind of, you know, switched our strategy. I mean, we, we've got now a lot of child blindness programs as opposed to cataract, which is now starting to, even though it's one of our specialties um, um, and retina stuff, we've, we've, we've switched in some of these countries because it's, it's lining up with what the country needs. You adapted. So yeah. You have, you have to adapt it. And, and you've got to be able to make sure that, that, you know, the, um, headquarters, you know, you know, understands that. And, and then, then, you know, like for, for example, in, in Orbis now, we have a, a huge telemedicine platform called CyberSight. We do a lot of virtual training, um, you know, all over, all over the world, you know, but a lot of the contents not in, not in Chinese, it's not in Vietnamese, it's, it's, it's not in some of these the languages where we work, Spanish. And so merging those strategic plans to translate important things. And again, I think that's part of leading is to have that vision to say, hey, listen, we can do a lot of this stuff, but being able to convince the headquarters that putting money into doing strategic translation, putting money into the, the training stuff, putting money into the fact that we, we need to advocate to the government to get glasses provided free for kids that can't get them is important. Absolutely. And I'm struck by that point that you, you, you can't steamroll your strategic plan in these various communities across the globe. Uh, you adapted to their community plans and that's, I'm sure the success rate is going to be much higher than from afar trying to tell a country what to do. Right. Well, yeah. And the point is you can go out there and you can do, you can make you know, you make incremental impact, but the only way that, that you're going to have any real impact on stuff is that if the government likes what you're doing and scales it up on their dime, because yes. even though if I got a, you know, $6 million grant from standard charter bank to do this project, that's not going to, that's not going to, it's nothing in a country like China. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, 
How does this apply to fundraising? I'm guessing you use the same kind of intuition and finesse and cultural awareness, or what are the lessons yeah. you've learned in the fundraising space? Well, I think that the, the three or four, again, I'm going to use the Kennedy Shriver thing, the three or four things that, that I've learned is, yes. is one is, you know, fundraising is building and maintaining relationships. I mean, and that's one of the things that it's like having a relationship with your daughter or your wife or your mom and dad or your best friend, you know, it's, it's work, <laughs> it's back and forth, but it's not something you just do once a year. So it's building and, and maintaining and stewarding those relationships. I think the second thing I learned is that, you know, a story and a face is worth 22 PowerPoints. Yes. You know, you just, you know, just can't send another PowerPoint working right now on uh, these little three to four page capability statements, which talks about what Orbis is and where we work and what we do, but also our capability around refractive error, around retinopathy of prematurity, around retinal disease, around diabetes and stuff like that. And in all of, in all of those, it comes with a story. And um, it comes with, you know, the story about, you know, the, the, the kid that was, you know, living in a, you know, you know, rural town and had dropped out of school and mainly because he was failing out and mainly because he couldn't see the blackboard. Yes, <laughs> and now yes. give the kid a pair of glasses, he's back in school. He's, you know, you know, he's, he may go to the university. So it's, an, it's not an impact. You show those stories in fundraising that, yeah, wow, we're really, you know, our company's not really interested in like uh, blindness and eyesight. Well, it's not really just eyesight and blindness. You know, if you give a kid a pair of glasses, it increases the educational outcome. So it's education. If you treat a, a, an elderly who was working in the fields that has cataracts and can't go to work with blind, with uh, cataract surgery and go back to work, it's poverty alleviation. Yes, yes. So you start talking about and what else, you know, if you give a kid, somebody a pair of glasses and they can see the road while they're driving their motorcycle and they don't get killed, it's all the health and safety stuff. Taking those things, putting it in a story, but also telling the secondary part of it that, you know, it it just kind of triples your ammunition when you say you don't go in and say, oh yeah, we will screen 10,000 kids and we'll give them glasses. Yeah. You translated and, it. You personalized it, didn't you? And or then you made what? It? Yeah. And then what, you know, oh, Mayan now tells the story about how she, you know, was a, just a failing student and she didn't want to go to school. And now she's got, she can see the blackboard and she's getting great grades and she got new friends and looking to go to the, the college in her province. And it just, those are the things that a donor wants to, wants to hear. Well put. And that's, couldn't agree more. And that's and just think, a way to translate it. And I think the one other thing is that donors are getting a heck of a lot more sophisticated now. Yeah. And it's, you know, before they used to be awed by outputs. I screened 10,000 people. I, you know, got 15,000 new Special Olympics athletes into the program. I did 10 training schools. I did this and stuff. But now it's the impact stuff. It's being able to articulate the impact um, of what, what their money is going to do. Um, that's really important. The impact on education, the impact on the poverty, the impact on, you know, be able to get a job, 
and the impact on their health and safety, the impact on gender equality. Um, you know, those are those are all things that donors are more and more interested in hearing from from a leader. It's great advice, and exactly right. Again, I love how you kind of translate the the science of fundraising. I think you're right; was more outputs oriented, but the the art of fundraising. And I would argue with you that the more successful fundraising is going to be how you just articulated it. So that. George, among many great pieces of advice you've offered in this conversation, I, you know, you and I both want more people to get into the NGO world. I wonder, as you talk to younger people, perhaps, or new people to the field, uh, is there any other final advice you'd offer them in terms of considering this career path? I'd say do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, more, more, you know, people, you know, I think a lot of people, even today, you know, people say, oh, that's really nice of you to have spent your years in NGO, you know, and doing it for your heart. And I have a beautiful house overlooking the ocean in South Carolina. Um, <laughs> and it's not because it's not because I'm making a huge amount of money, but I've, we are a big business now. We, you know, when you're running an organization that's, you know, $200 million a year, you know, people in the nonprofit world are getting compensated for the type of work and impact they're doing. So it's kind of a win-win situation that it's not just something that you're, you know, and you're in the old days, go in the Peace Corps and you get three square meals a day and, you know, you've got a lot of experience. So it's something that can be a, a, a real long-term profession as, you know, as, you know, as you can see for me, I mean, it's a great point. I, I remember George coming back from my internship with special Olympics and you're right. There was the, the appreciation, but almost like, yeah, that was really nice. Pat me on the head kind of, but when are you going to get a real job? And I'm like, no, this is a real job and a real profession. As you just said, wonderful. Thank you, George, for all of this. I, I guess, as you know, I got a, I need a parting gift from you, which is a, okay. a book recommendation or that you might, anything that has inspired you or that you might recommend for our listeners? Absolutely. So, you know, in general, I, I got a lot of my leadership kind of tips by reading bios. I loved reading bios, yes. like Ronald yeah. Reagan and Eisenhower and Kennedy and George Washington and Lincoln and those guys. I think there's a lot of things you can learn from, you know, though from books like that. The, the business book that I really enjoyed was uh, a book by Lee Iacocca, um, Where Have All the Leaders Gone? And, nice. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really kind of impressive book from an impressive guy. Um, and it's probably available on Amazon and Audible. So, oh well, we will we'll link it up. We will link it up in the show notes with your all of your resources. In fact, yeah, I want to make sure folks can get information on Special Olympics, on Orbis, and of course, where George can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing through Orbis? Well, I think that our website at www.orbis.org. Orbis.org. Um, it, it's a, it's got a, it's a great website. It's got a lot about what we do. You can really check out a lot about our Flying Eye Hospital and our, our great, great technology. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's really good. So you can go there, and obviously, SpecialOlympics.org is another great website, um, and, and all the work that we both did in the past in that organization. Absolutely. George, cannot wait to lift it up. And thank you again for joining me on the path. Hey, my pleasure. We'll see you soon, hopefully face to face.
Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with George as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey, whether your scope is local or global. Don't forget the show notes. They're available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about George, the work he's doing at Orbis, as well as our mutual connection to Special Olympics International. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with at least one other person on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see the follow button prominently featured on the homepage there. And it'll link to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing every other month. If you like this episode, click on the Episodes button also on that landing page, and you can scroll through now what amounts to 137 great conversations like this one with George. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.